Ron Rosedale, there is an increasing rise in neurodegenerative diseases right now. That's not what we want. No, we don't want diseases, period. But uh, unfortunately, it is part of life. The major problem is not that we're getting the diseases, but we're getting them more frequently and younger. The rise in these chronic diseases, is, in fact, virtually all chronic diseases, correlates with the, uh, the patterns of, of dietary changes that we've been seeing, perhaps delayed by 20 or 30 years for the results of those dietary changes to actually manifest themselves. Uh, but I think there's a strong link between diet, metabolism, and all of the chronic diseases of aging, including uh, neurodegenerative uh, diseases. You know, not everybody agrees because of the fact that our world has gotten too clean. We don't have enough germs and dirtiness in the world. We have more vaccines and antibodies, uh, antibiotics used. I recall hearing that at least 20 years ago, and I totally agree with it. Uh, I, I have I see no fault with that argument. The only fault I see is that that's the only reason. I think there's ample evidence to show that uh, the, the dietary changes exclusive of cleanliness uh, have a huge impact on neurodegenerative diseases uh, in addition to our lack of early exposure to antigenic stimuli for that immune system. So I think that that certainly plays a role. I think we, when you are exposed early in life to the typical antigens, the typical bacteria and viruses, uh, and other uh, immune-stimulating effects that does program our immune system to do what it evolutionarily is supposed to do and therefore help fight disease and not fight itself, not fight your own body. In other words, it helps the body to become less confused as to what is self and what is non-self. Uh, and, and that's a very, very important bit of information that the body requires, especially the immune system, so that the regulatory T-cells and inhibitory T-cells that prevent overactivity of the immune system are properly developed. But I think there is at least as much evidence to show that the regulatory T-cells and the immune system is also very much affected by dietary changes, and that these, these effects can occur almost from day to day, but that diseases, metabolic diseases such as leptin resistance has a huge impact on the immune system. Uh, studies that show that autoimmune diseases such as animal models of, of MS uh, almost uniformly show a big rise in leptin prior to the clinical onset of the disease. When you mentioned that there's a big rise in leptin before the onset of disease, I'm trying to picture that. Does that mean that there is a sudden spike one day where leptin levels go 100 times higher than usual? Or does that mean that over time, if you check the fasting level of somebody, that their leptin levels, uh, that hormone, in their blood increases consistently and stays high. Actually, I've seen studies that show both, that if you have a chronically high leptin level that your uh, incidence of uh, autoimmune neurological diseases such as MS are greatly increased and that if you suppress leptin uh, chemically, although I would recommend doing it dietarily, you can reduce the uh, the risk of onset by a great deal of MS. But I've also seen articles that showed a, a sudden spike. It wasn't 100 times as much, uh, but certainly a several-fold spike in leptin in the, in the weeks prior to the onset of MS, even with a consistent diet. All of the knowledge, all of the pieces have not been put together. But what it does show is a powerful connection between leptin and autoimmune disease, and especially uh, MS. Now, I'm curious about one other thing, and that's I'm trying to picture how scientists were able to figure out that a leptin spike could make a difference in this autoimmune disease, MS. Most people don't get their leptin levels checked very often. In fact, very few people do. So how did they figure this out? They found, I don't know what was the, was the light bulb initially, other than perhaps the fact that Scientists now have been linking leptin with virtually all chronic diseases, 
And so why leave out autoimmune disease? Uh, in addition, uh, leptin levels have been linked with longevity. Science of aging and certainly autoimmune disease is, is a big part of that. And most of the studies on aging, of course, are done on animals. Very difficult to do uh, lifespan studies on humans since they take such a long time. But two of the main causes of uh, death in laboratory animals are cancer and autoimmune disease. So both of those diseases have been studied quite extensively, actually, with leptin. And another piece of information that was discovered is that regulatory T cells, the part of the white blood cells that tend to regulate the immune response and regulate inflammation, basically keeps it from going out of control, like a fire burning out of control. You want a controlled fire, not one that just kind of burns down the forest. The regulatory T cells have receptors for leptin and has even been found that they can secrete leptin. That the immune system and leptin are the powerful connection between the two. T cells I think of as the ones that you hear attacks the wrong thing in somebody who has an autoimmune disease. That their T cells, instead of going after invaders in the body, goes after the body. Right. It gets confused as to uh, what is yourself that should not be attacked and what is something foreign that ought to be attacked. Uh, sometimes it can be difficult to distinguish the two, uh, especially when some of the foods we're eating are so similar to ourselves. You know, I mean, all life really is quite similar genetically and all the cells are quite similar. So it actually takes a very, very intelligent, very acutely intelligent immune system to figure out what is you and what isn't once things are actually digested. So um, it's, it's a very important piece of the puzzle in autoimmune diseases. And certainly antibiotics, uh, I feel, play a huge role. Their use is wildly out of control. Everybody's getting antibiotics. You get a sore throat, you'll get an antibiotic, even though 90% of those sore throats are caused by viruses. And the antibiotic, if it does anything, will, will make it worse, actually, because that antibiotic will not just kill uh, so-called pathogenic, you know, the disease-causing microorganisms, disease-causing bacteria, I should say, but they'll also kill the good bacteria that inhabit your gut and inhabit your throat and inhabit your sinuses and your skin. And we need those bacteria. We've evolved with those bacteria. Majority of people don't realize that in a normal, healthy state, we have four times as many bacteria inhabiting our bodies as we have cells. So we're not talking about a small amount. We're talking about the majority of cells that actually are part of us are beneficial bacteria that we end up at least partially killing when we take antibiotics. And when we kill those bacteria, they don't necessarily come back as they were. It allows then other pathogenic bacteria to permanently become part of our flora and cause continual problems uh, in our gut, for instance. So that it's quite known that when you take antibiotics, you can have an intestinal yeast infection. Although many times it's subclinical. If it's bad, it'll cause diarrhea and bloating and gas, and, and somebody will seek help, and, and they still generally don't find it. But many times, you don't have those overt symptoms. But you can have you know, various stomach aches and pains, or food tolerance becomes less. But what it does do is impair your permanently really alter your immune system and your immune response until you change that bacterial flora where you or you reduce the amount of yeast and you and you kill off some of the pathogenic bacteria that inhabit the gut secondary to the use of antibiotics and then reintroduce some of the more beneficial bacteria but that's just really again just one one small portion of the story and then you have uh, the, the dietary impact on insulin and leptin and their impact on uh, the T-cells and other uh, immune modulators uh, and its effects on bone and the effects of bone on, uh, on, on the immune system as, as we've talked about in the past. There's a, there's a huge connection between autoimmune disease, the immune system, and uh, survivability, disease, and diet. And the reason, really, is that diet is important. You can't live without, without eating. You can't reproduce without eating. 
And that's what nature wants. And nature wants you to be able to at least reach reproductive age. And uh, there, nature has all sorts of mechanisms to try and ensure that at least we get to reproductive age. After that, it doesn't really care that much. Well, that's why some of these diseases are so troubling, some of these autoimmune diseases, because some of them right now at a higher frequency are disabling and killing people in their reproductive years. That's why it, it's, it's becoming you know, more known. I think if a person gets a disease when they're 90 years old, we say, well, you're 90 years old. What do you expect? Now that they're starting to get these diseases at a younger age, uh, during and even before reproductive age, it starts uh, raising alarms. We have so many different things in our lifestyle now, so many different adverse uh, you know, lifestyle changes that are extremely unnatural. We've not seen in our evolutionary history until recently. Some of what you mentioned before, the cleanliness, we're, we're just not exposed to the proper antigens, adverse bugs that we should be when we're young so that our immune system doesn't develop properly. And then we have chronically high levels of glucose and high levels of insulin, high levels of leptin, all of which then further impair the ability of our immune system to properly function. And all of these things are coming together to cause disease such that for the first time in mankind, it's predicted lifespan now is going to decrease as opposed to it's constantly increasing throughout our, our known history. Well, you've mentioned one way that we might be able to reduce this tide, and that is what we put in our mouths. If we can reduce the amount of antibiotic we put in our mouths, then that might give our guts a better chance to be healthy for when we digest food so that we don't end up with a confused immune system because of poor digestion. That's one side that you've described. But you're also saying that the actual food that people eat and how it affects the hormones in our bodies will also affect how well our immune system makes sense of what's going on. What is it that makes leptin levels go up? What makes insulin levels go up? Let's talk about insulin first. It actually is a bit simpler. What we know makes insulin go up are glucose levels in the blood. So when glucose levels in the blood go up, uh, insulin will spike to store the excess, not to lower the blood sugar. That's a, uh, a huge misconception, not just among the public, but among uh, almost all physicians. We're taught in medical school that the purpose of insulin is to regulate blood sugar, and that couldn't be further from the truth. The purpose of insulin is to store uh, excess nutrients for future times of need, and that's just even a minor purpose of insulin. And we can get into the major purpose of insulin maybe a little bit later. Uh, so when sugar goes up, it's an indication. When sugar goes up in your bloodstream, when it just kind of spikes up, you have uh, food that increases blood sugar, which might be as innocuous as a potato or, or rice that the whole world seems to be eating in overabundance. Uh, bread and pasta and cereals, you know, breakfast of champion, all of these things will, all of it will, will cause the body to manufacture a lot of sugar from the food. So the starch starts in your, in your mouth, will be broken down by the amylase in the saliva into blood sugar, and the blood sugar will, will rise quite rapidly, and you're, you won't be able to burn it as rapidly unless you're sprinting while you're eating, and then you will uh, raise your blood sugar, and that's a sign that you've got more nutrients available now than you can burn, and so your body wants to save that because we come from a history of feast and famine, and your body is not going to want to waste those nutrients, and so you'll save it for a future less opportune time when food might not have been available. Tomorrow you might have to fast. In our evolutionary history, if food wasn't available all the time, it was feast or famine. And if it was famine tomorrow, you wanted to save those excess nutrients from today. And so you will store them. You'll store a little bit as a type of biological starch called glycogen, but mostly you'll convert it into fat, which is our major uh, energy supply and major energy storage, or at least it's supposed to be our major energy supply. The signal to do all these physiologic things with the excess nutrient is mostly insulin. So insulin will go up, it will change the way that your genes are being read, and it will say, hey, you've got a bunch of fuel right now, let's take the excess and store it, and let's do something with what we've got. 
and in our evolutionary history, when there was an overabundance of food, or just an abundance of food, not even an overabundance, uh, it'll say that cells should reproduce. You've got enough energy now that you can reproduce. It takes a lot of energy to make a new you and make a new cell. And so when we talk about reproduction here, we're not necessarily talking about making a new person. We're talking about making a new cell. So you've got energy available. You can now make cells to replace old damaged cells, but it will do so by changing certain genetic pathways, turning the switch to on, which when left unregulated because of impaired immune system, let's say, uh, will lead to cancer. And so not only are you giving a switch that is telling cells to reproduce, but you're also then damaging the control of that reproduction from the immune system, and the end result is an increase in cancer. And now we know, and I, I mentioned this at least 20 years ago, I think, that when insulin levels are high, you will have an increase in, in cancer, and that's really proving to be somewhat prophetic because now they're really showing that many different kinds of cancer are related to glucose and insulin levels, and leptin levels too, by the way, uh, and they're all related. It's very, very important not to let glucose levels and insulin levels spike by the foods that will generally raise those, which are sugars, obviously, uh, and starches. When I mention the sugars, it has to be recognized. We're not just talking about the glycemic index here. The glycemic index just measures glucose. It doesn't measure sugar. So many people now feel that they can have fructose. Things like agave uh, are, are being espoused on, on talk shows as a, as a wonderful thing to have, when in fact agave is 90% fructose, and fructose doesn't raise blood glucose. Uh, it raises blood fructose, <laughs> and so it doesn't have a high glycemic index, which is why they're saying it's healthy, but it does uh, many other really adverse things, uh, such as uh, cause the liver to produce fat, some of which then ends up staying in the liver and causing a fatty liver so that your liver actually gets obese and that it can't then have proper blood circulation and can't receive proper hormonal signals from insulin, which normally tells the liver to stop manufacturing sugar so that then the, uh, the liver over-manufactures glucose so that you wake up in the morning and your sugars are high even though you haven't eaten, and that's what you see in diabetics. We're talking about diseases such as diabetes and cancer and heart disease too, which has these kind of connections. How does this tie in with autoimmune diseases? How do these hormones tie in with the fact that T-cells can get confused and other hormonal signals in the body can get messed up so that, for instance, nerves in the body start to be attacked by the body and don't get repaired? How does all this eating tie in with that? The way the body functions really is, is I guess, more akin to the music of being played by an orchestra than anything else I can think of. And so if you impair... Uh, one part of that orchestra, you know, some of the, the signaling from the violins, let's say, all the rest of it, all the rest of the music uh, really kind of becomes impaired. But especially if the conductor uh, starts you know, having a twitch in his arm, uh, you're going to have a real problem. And that conductor, uh, to me right now, is leptin. Uh, I was one of the, I think, first people to really talk about the importance of insulin uh, decades ago, but and, and insulin is still extremely important, but leptin in humans anyway perhaps might even be more important, and it's so universally dysfunctional in people that it then uh, trickles down to every process, every biological process in the body, uh, including the way that the liver functions for diabetes, it controls insulin production and reception, it controls bone growth and repair, uh, it controls the vascular function, having to do then with hypertension and, and a cardiovascular disease, has a lot to do with cancer, and as we've talked previously, has a whole lot to do with autoimmune disease uh, in, in many different ways, part of which is the regulation, or at least partial regulation, of uh, the regulatory T-cell white blood cells, which help keep the immune system from going overboard. Well, Ron Rosedale, I'm confused because I've done just a very light look at some of the medical treatments for autoimmune diseases, uh, for 
a lot of diseases, there are anti-inflammatory drugs given. Lots of steroids are used in treating autoimmune diseases. Also, um, different drugs that either boost or tamp down on a neurotransmitter kind of signal that goes to the nerves. I don't see very many medical treatments that have to do with cooling off leptin. No, there aren't. Uh, and the reason for that is there's no money in it. I mean, it might sound uh, kind of a, a simple and flippant remark, but it's true. The only therapies that make their way into standard medical care are those that can be patented and those that can be profited from, you know, huge profits. It takes quite a bit of money to get FDA approval for something, and you have to make money off of it. And all of these are corporate-sponsored and corporate-controlled, and the purpose of corporations is to make money. And Now, now you might be right about that, but we, I, I can't go to a pharmaceutical company and ask them about their motivation. So I, I, it's not something that I can double-check with them to see what they say about that. But one thing that I can do is look at what some of the treatments are for some autoimmune diseases and start to compare them. What if I pretend that I'm a consumer who wants to make an informed decision and I want to look at what are the treatments out there and what are some of the alternatives there? So, so what if we focused on something like multiple sclerosis, for instance, MS? Because it's a disease that's on the rise in the United States, and it's hitting people at younger ages, and there are a lot of different ways that it can be treated. There's a drug called acetylcholinesterase, or acetylcholinesterase inhibitors, that are one of the common treatments for MS, I believe. And steroids are another. There are different interferons that are given. I don't know exactly what all these things are. Is it worthwhile to explain some of them and see what they are? Well, <laughs> the real short answer is no, because none of them work. If somebody wants to take these kind of medications because they're desperate or they're worried or they've been told these might work, what's the harm? The harm is that they have adverse side effects. Most of these medications they inhibit the immune system. They're kind of shotguns, so they don't just inhibit the immune system attacking the myelin sheath of nerves, which is what causes MS. So nerves, some of the bigger nerves, have a fatty layer above them, basically as, as an insulator, just like a, uh, when you insulate an electrical wire. And if you don't have that insulation, then the electrons can just go everywhere instead of to the intended target. And that's one of the major purposes of the myelin, the fatty sheath that's around the major nerves. It also can aid in the the speed of transmission through the nerve. So the myelin sheath is quite important. And what happens in MS, for instance, is that the immune system attacks that myelin sheath, and basically pokes holes in it, and that interferes with electrical conductivity in those nerves. You make it sound like the nerves get frayed, just like an electrical wire can get frayed. Yeah. Uh, they, the, the sheath of the nerves get, get, uh, get frayed, you might say, so that they have holes in them. And it's, I think, fairly uh, accepted that it is because of an overactive immune system, that a person's own immune system attacks the myelin sheath. And so it's in the class of disease we call autoimmune disease. Wait, when you say that the problem is that it's an overactive immune system, that puzzles me because a number of the treatments for these kind of diseases, for these and other diseases, is to look at the disease and say, these nerves are not working as well. And so we need to boost the signal. We need to push them harder because the signal isn't getting through. Someone with MS, for instance, may have trouble walking. They may have trouble using their hands. Um, in more severe cases, they may have trouble breathing. And it's because the nerve signal isn't getting through. So one logic of medical treatments can be to figure out whatever way they can to boost the signal because the instruction isn't getting through to the nerve. So why not push the signal louder? The problem with that is global movements instead of fine-tuned movements. So it just kind of it takes a hammer and just kind of pounds away at the piano instead of you know nicely playing tunes with one's fingers. When you just increase nerve signals, you're not just increasing it in those areas of the nerves that require it. You're increasing it everywhere. 
you might benefit a couple nerves that maybe have a bit of slow transmission because of myelin damage. But then what about all the other nerves that have the right transmission that you're now over-accelerating? And this is how people die in most cases of severe snake bites and other toxic venomous animal bites. What these venoms do is inhibit our ability to break down that neurotransmitter called acetylcholine. And so when your nerves produce acetylcholine, it goes from one nerve to the next as kind of a messenger, and it tells the next nerve to go ahead and, and transmit your signal. But then you have to get rid of that acetylcholine, or it keeps telling the same message over and over again long after it shouldn't. And so you have to then break that acetylcholine down, and the body does it through a chemical called a cholinesterase. The toxins that nature produces for animals to kill other animals is called an acetylcholinesterase inhibitor. Acetylcholinesterase inhibitor? I've seen that as the mechanism of action for drug treatments that are designed to treat these nerve-destroying conditions. Right. And the problem is that it won't just do it in one particular nerve, let alone one particular place or a few different places on a particular nerve or even a few nerves. It, it does it everywhere because that acetylcholine then is universal throughout the body and it's one of the major neurotransmitters that's used everywhere. And so by increasing a message in one place that maybe you need to increase the signal in that place because it's damaged, you don't want to increase it everywhere else because you're doing the same thing then that a, a venomous snake bite does. And so you're damaging the other nerves and the other signals, and you're actually then will ultimately cause uh, resistance to acetylcholine. So at first you'll cause damage from too much, and then you cause problems with too little. We don't know enough to specify exactly where, when, and how to place a signal, not just in this disease, but in any disease. The problem with, with diabetes, for instance, is the orchestration of the signals. People take insulin. When they're insulin resistant, for instance, the vast majority of diabetics are diabetic because their cells are not able to listen to insulin. They have enough of it. In fact, most of them have too much of it. But certain cells are not able to listen to it. Other cells are getting too much. Not all the cells in the body are equally resistant. So the liver might be more resistant than the cells that line the arteries. And so when, then when you give the person more insulin so that the liver gets the message to stop making excess sugar, that same more insulin is going to expose the cells that line the arteries, the endothelial cells, to even more insulin signal, which will cause the endothelium to proliferate. It, it, they signal for the endothelial cells that line the arteries to multiply, because high insulin is a signal to reproduce. It's a signal that you've got lots of nutrition available. It's a good time to reproduce. So the endothelial cells will reproduce. It'll produce fat, it'll produce plaque, and it will plug your arteries. And so, and that's just one simple example. And it's not a hypothetical example, that's a real example. And so when you take excess insulin, when you're taking insulin for a type 2 diabetic, it might lower your sugar, but it's causing all these other effects that are adverse because of the high insulin effects on the cells that are already exposed to high insulin. And that's the problem with a, a lack of orchestration. And that's just uniform. We are not advanced enough in medicine to treat a particular signal in a particular spot at a particular time. And that's what is required for health. That's how you play music. You don't just constantly press one key all the time. You've got to press it now and then let go. And press a different key now and then let go. And then you get a musical score. And that musical score you might consider to be health. 
A lot of medical doctors, a lot of pharmaceutical companies would say that they have very finely calibrated their medications for diseases such as autoimmune diseases so that they're at just the right level so that they don't cause harm, but instead cause benefit in the same way that a signal from our own body is able to go in and give a signal to the to the nerves to do some kind of action and then step back. The rationale that I've heard from uh, medical researchers and doctors about why to give these kind of medications is that overall, on the balance, the whole body is pulled back from where it should be in sending out signals, for instance, in someone with MS. So what else can they do but use their very finely calibrated, very carefully played drug application to improve the signal to those nerves? None of the drugs for MS work. They have no cure for MS. They have no help for MS in standard medical care. That's not what I hear from people who support these kind of applications, these kind of medications. But that's what the studies will say. In fact, uh, so a friend of mine was just diagnosed with MS and uh, is seeing one of the top MS doctors supposedly in the world who is going to put her on one of the, uh, the newest and bestest drugs for MS called Sopaxone. The generic name is glitiramur acetate. So glitiramur acetate, very expensive. I think it, it costs in the neighborhood of ten dollars or $20,000 a month or something ridiculous. It's given by injection only. Um, and that's like one of the newest and bestest uh, you know, drugs for MS given by one of the top experts in the field. And here is a summary uh, from the Cochrane Report. Now, the Cochrane Collaboration uh, is a group that uh, synthesizes all of the known information and they make a report. And so they take all of the studies and, and reports of drugs and uh, look at it all together and they essentially give their opinion as to the effectiveness of this drug. Here is what it says about glutiramer acetate, one of the newest and supposedly best drugs for MS. It's a very long report, but at the end, plain language summary. The data show no beneficial effects on disease progression in both MS forms, period. Both MS forms uh, is there's a, a relapsing, remitting form of MS and a progressive form of MS, otherwise known as RRMS and PMS. And again, I will repeat that. The data show no beneficial effects on disease progression in both MS forms. Adverse effects such as flushing, chest tightness, sweating, palpitations, anxiety, and local injection site reactions occurred quite frequently. And I would add, after looking at that drug a little bit more, that what you will see, although they can't show it in a short period of time, you're going to see a great increase in cancer due to it, its adverse effects on the immune system. If there's no benefit... Why is it out there on the market? It's supposed to, uh, essentially it works by reducing the immune, immune system. It, it works by reducing T-cell activity. So it, it reduces the effectiveness in, of the immune system, and therefore it will reduce the, supposedly reduce the immune system's effect on the myelin sheath. But the problem is it doesn't just reduce the effects on myelin sheath. It reduces then the effects on everything. Everything that the immune system is for, to protect you from infections, to protect you from cancer. Uh, I guess I didn't say that earlier, but you require a very powerful immune system to protect yourself from cancer. Cancer, uh, if it gets by other regulation, regulatory systems in the body, is uh, hopefully recognized as a foreign agent like a bacteria or a virus, and that cancer cell then will be mopped up by your immune uh, system and won't give you overt signs of cancer. You won't come up with what we call cancer, even though you might have had, you know, millions of cancer cells in your body. And everybody's getting cancer. Who knows? Every five minutes, every hour, I don't know. Uh, but every, cancer is very common. The body has mechanisms to keep it in check so that we don't succumb to it or even know that we have had it. But that requires a very powerful immune system. Most of the treatments for cancer basically wipe out the immune system, such as chemotherapy, and then people end up dying. So that's why I say that 
unfortunately, our, our medical system really is in an infantile stage. I mean, we're going to be looked at by future generations, just like we look at medicine from the medieval ages. We are no more advanced, perhaps less advanced now than we were then. I can sympathize with a doctor who rationalizes that cancer tends to kill people slowly, sometime further out in time. Severe incidents of MS can kill someone quickly. So could it be that this kind of drug is suggested as a way to buy somebody more time by increasing the risk of a disease that might happen later to stop a disease that's happening right now? No, not if it doesn't help the disease. This isn't saying that the drug just has side effects. It's saying that it doesn't help MS. So it doesn't help MS, but has side effects, bad side effects. There's no excuse for that. Doctors, when they get their licenses, take a Hippocratic Oath. Joked on is a hypocritic oath, and it really is a hypocritic oath, because doctors take the oath and then throw it away. Because the first thing they'll do is forget about it, because virtually every drug that they prescribe has adverse effects. So the Hippocratic oath, paraphrased, at least do no harm. And doctors don't do harm all the time, but they're trying to weigh, like you just mentioned, the benefits versus the risk. And unfortunately, the risk generally far outweighs the benefit. Or the benefit is short-term for a long-term, even more detrimental adverse effect. We're supposed to have a whole system of checks and balances to try to keep the risk-benefit ratio in the favor of the patient who needs better health. We have the FDA that's supposed to safeguard people against drugs that aren't supposed to be, that, that might harm them. We have a huge layer of different agencies and different regulations to try to prevent a drug that is not going to be useful and might cause more side effects that are harmful than it causes benefits. We could talk for hours really about how the system is broken. And then there's the way that the pharmaceutical companies do studies that there's, there's many ways to statistically twist results. Or even when they uh, design the study to begin with, they'll design it basically for deceptive purposes. And they'll design a study to kind of show benefit and mask the side effects. So for instance, if you knew it took so many patients so many years to show a positive uh, cancer effect, you'll make sure that you use fewer years and fewer patients so that that cancer effect doesn't show up and that uh, the positive effect might show up in a particular age group uh, after the results are done and then you can throw away the results of all the other age groups because you're not required to show negative results. So you're not in favor of, of medications that knock out the immune system's T-cells. You don't think that that's the way to go. What about ones that, uh, and, you, and you're not in favor of medications that boost the signal of the, uh, of the neurotransmitters. What is the name of that neurotransmitter? Aceta? Acetylcholine. Acetylcholine. So you're not in favor of medications that either repress how quickly the body recycles them or just simply rev up that signal because that can end up ripping up a lot of the nervous system. Are there any other standard treatments that are just out there, like steroids? Let's, I'll bet you anything that steroids are a common treatment for autoimmune diseases. What do you think of them? Well, steroids are known to impair the immune system. And yes, they definitely are a common treatment. And, and it's been shown over many decades that it's very ineffective. Side effects there far outweigh the benefits. The steroids will they say impair your immune system, so we know that it increases your risk of infection, of cancer, and we know that it also increases blood sugar and can actually cause overt diabetes. It also breaks down protein tissue, so it can make you more osteoporotic and make you weaker. There are so many adverse effects of taking corticosteroids that it really is almost beyond the scope of this discussion. One should totally forget that as a treatment for any type of chronic disease. What you do see are certain treatments being totally ignored because there really is no money behind it. And the pharmaceutical company is not going to be going around to doctors and saying that there is a key role of leptin in the control of regulatory T-cell proliferation. And that is the title of an article that came out quite a while ago, that when leptin is high, it reduces regulatory T-cells. Really one of the holy grails of autoimmune diseases is to increase regulatory T-cells and not reduce the immune system, but reduce the part of the immune system 
that is attacking one's own tissue. And that is the function of the regulatory T cells. They regulate T cell function. That's what their name implies, and that's what they do. So they prevent out-of-control burning, you might say, of tissues by the immune system. Regulatory T cells are a real hot topic in the autoimmune disorders. And it's been known now for several years that one of the major regulators of regulatory T cells is leptin. And when you inhibit leptin, it increases regulatory T cells. And there have been many more than one study that has shown this. But the key there is that leptin levels change with every meal. So if you eat a meal to keep your leptin levels low, you will upregulate your regulatory T cells. And that's what you want for autoimmune diseases. And that's what you want for cancer. That's what you want for virtually anything that has to do with proper functioning and health. So that's very important. And then there's another article. The interface between immune and metabolic regulation a role for leptin in the pathogenesis of multiple sclerosis. In other words, not just in the treatment, but it shows that dysregulation of leptin might be a major cause of multiple sclerosis in the first place. So why not go right to the source? Now, Ron, would you be comfortable uh, if I posted on the internet not only the title of those articles, but the authors and a way to find the citation? No, I'd be fine. Here's my hope, is that today there's enough information that's available to people that they can do their own checking to see what makes sense to them. And it's also my hope that if something makes enough sense, then it might actually be worth doing, and it might make a difference. And so perhaps we're in a time where uh, if people look for a path of information that... uh, they can check out for themselves, they might find some good answers. Oh, and they might, and they might, you know, and the people really have to start taking their health into their own control because unfortunately, standard medicine, medical care really is controlled by large corporations. And no, you can't necessarily look into their mind, but I think most people understand what the major purpose of large corporations is. And it has very little, if anything, to do with health, much more to do with wealth. Um, so uh, another thing I want to mention is when you get a lot of different lines of research intersecting at one point, you really have to start paying attention. And for instance, another line of research, for instance, is just showing the sugar itself, that that high glucose is associated with multiple sclerosis. And when you prevent high glucose, that uh, MS can be reduced. Uh, And again, that then gets you back to insulin and gets you back to leptin and, uh, you know, metabolic control in general. And the two major metabolic hormones are insulin and leptin. And they're called metabolic hormones because their major influence is what you eat. And so it's extremely important. And there's, there's mechanistic actions. I mean, we even know why. There's this good, good scientific physiology as to why this even might be so. It's not uh, you know, just hocus pocus. So with glucose, for instance, uh, they talk about the glycation of uh, cholinesterase and cholinesterase inhibitors. And that it, 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 we've known about glycation for, for you know, quite some time. We've talked about it before that uh, glycation can really mess up uh, proper uh, functioning of proteins. Okay, so I, I think I hear you saying that if you make a cholinesterase, which is the nerve transmitter, get too sticky and gummed up with sugar stuck to it, then it's going to do some things that it shouldn't, and it's not going to work in some places that it's needed. And if you glycate, if you gum up a cholinesterase, the stuff that inhibits and recycles the nerve transmitter, then it may not be there to act when it's needed, or it may bungle into something else because it's all gummed up and hurt it just because it's all gummed up. And even more so, the receptors. So the receptors are proteins too, and they can get glycated, or as you mentioned, gummed up by glucose, uh, caramelized. Another kind of common colloquial, scientifically colloquial term for glycation is caramelization. Basically, uh, it's, it's, it's not just a picture, but it's, it's true. Caramel is basically caramelization of cream. So if you add uh, glucose to cream, you get caramel. And the same thing happens in your body, basically. And it's one of the major uh, mechanisms that is studied in the biology of aging. We know that uh, glycation uh, will cause damage, and that damage will accrue. And a lot of that accrual we see as the uh, damage or senescence 
associated with getting older. And so wrinkles and cataracts and all these things we know are uh, directly attributable to glycation or caramelization. And, but other things caramelize. So receptors for hormones, uh, even the neurotransmitters are a type of hormone, like acetylcholine, uh, they glycate. And the, the acetylcholine itself can glycate, but that might be less important because it doesn't last that long. And so that gets mopped up. But what, what does happen is whenever anything glycates, uh, the, the body has to get rid of that glycation. That's now a damaging, a damaging protein. And so we know that it stimulates the immune system and stimulates macrophages, which are part of the immune system, to clean up that, that gummed up caramelized protein. And so it will then attack the caramelization, which could be one of the causes also of MS. So when you caramelize, when you glycate, nerves, you stimulate the immune system to have to clean up that caramelization, and it might go a little overboard and damage uh, some of the nerves that uh, are even more so as a result of having been glycated. You know, so there's a lot of damaging effects of the glucose itself, but glucose's effects on other very powerful hormones such as insulin and leptin which then have global effects throughout the body on all of the chronic diseases of aging because of their effects on the actual biology and rate of aging itself. And that aging then has symptoms that we know of as the damage associated with aging, such as autoimmune disease and cancer and obesity and diabetes and rheumatoid arthritis and osteoporosis. All of these are symptoms of getting older that are accelerated, we know, when insulin and leptin and uh, certain other metabolic signals are elevated. Well, you know, Ron Rosedale, you have spent your career looking at these diseases and focusing on the disease initially of insulin. Does it surprise you to see a resonance of some of the mechanisms you've seen for what causes a disease like diabetes happen in a disease such as multiple sclerosis? Well, it just makes sense. Um, I guess I, I went out on a limb, you know, many years ago and kind of predicted a lot of these things, uh, uh, but there was no real science behind it. It took you know, sometimes, you know, just now, sometimes 20 years later, a lot of the science now is supporting it, but it made sense then. It makes more sense now. There's, uh, the, the science was just so powerful and, and in some cases so obvious that uh, it really is frustrating that it is not being utilized. It, it's now, you know, just very basic. When I, when I still see studies now coming out that, you know, low carbohydrates, so-called ketogenic diets, can, you know, help epilepsy or can uh, be beneficial for diabetics, as, as if it's new information. When 20 years ago, I I started talking about this, and I think you know we've talked about this before too. But when I first started talking about this. I was very shy to talk about it. Uh, I, I started treating my patients in a, I was working in a, basically a practice that had lots of cardiovascular patients. And so they were there to treat their cardiovascular disease. And many of these people also had diabetes. And I was treating them with a diet that I will maintain to this same to this very day, it hasn't changed one bit, not, not anything about this diet has changed. And all I did literally, probably in an hour, I sat down, thought of a diet that would not raise blood sugar. And in grade school, we're taught that starches turn to sugar. So, well, there go the starches. A little research shows that we don't need any in the diet, that the, uh, the minimum daily requirement of carbohydrate is zero. And so I just wiped those out, and I knew the proteins could turn to sugar, but we needed some protein. It is required. So I moderated the protein and figure out, figured out really how much protein a person should have depending on their lean mass, and then realized that what you have left is, is fat. A little research on fat showed that it was metabolized differently, actually a much cleaner fuel, and that the, the medical uh, uh, what is it? degradation of fat. I mean, the medical, uh, what's the word, uh, desecration <laughs> of, of fat uh, was, was totally wrong. 
that we're being told to eat a low-fat diet when in fact it should be quite the opposite. That should be our major source of fuel. And so I started people on essentially a higher fat, uh, very low, uh, very low carb, very low starch, a moderate protein diet. All the other low carbohydrate diets are kind of going towards what I was espousing originally. Well, and, and in fact, it it shows up in many places in surprising ways. Um, I'm hoping to talk with some researchers who are close to Johns Hopkins who've been doing some study with rodents, where they give them a poison. They poison the rodents with something called somin poisoning, which is a way to, uh, it basically does what a snake bite does. It's a, it's a poison that's used in wars or was used in wars. And interestingly enough, in this study, uh, the, the rodents that they had on a glucose diet died very quickly. The ones on a standard diet died about half as fast or half as slowly. But they put some of these rodents on a ketogenic diet, a high-fat diet, an adequate protein, a very low-carb diet. And those rodents, for the most part, survived the poisoning. And it was very interesting to read some of the possibilities. They talked about glycation. They talked about the fact that basically the body stayed cooler. And they didn't use quite that word, but they, they described a situation where the toxic effects were able to be processed out more efficiently. And um, there were some interesting things about that, though, because if I were to be persuaded that the kind of diet that you recommend might be therapeutic, I mean, that would be a scary step for somebody who's got at the point of one of these diseases where it's threatening their health, uh, it's painful, it's threatening their mobility, or it might be even threatening their life. And I, if I put myself in the shoes of someone like that, that would be a very scary time to try to raise my hopes toward changing how I eat of all things to see if it could make a difference. Is there a point where it's too late to even try? No, no, there's never a point where it's too late to try until you're basically beyond dead. Um, even in the study of the rodents that was done close to Johns Hopkins at the, at the Army Institute of, uh, an Army Institute, what they noticed was that if they shifted animals to this kind of diet for just 24 hours, they got sicker. They got more sick and they showed more signs of illness. If instead they had been accustomed to this diet for 48 hours, just another day's worth, they did much better. I don't know whether they poisoned the, the rodents after they were adapted for 48 hours or if they tried to switch them. I don't know what would happen if someone's sick and you switch their diet in the middle of them being sick to something this different. I can virtually assure you that the adverse effects or adverse feelings that one gets by switching their diet will be far less than what they would feel with chemotherapy or what they feel with uh, a drug akin to snake venom. Uh, the adaptation to this type of diet exists one must adapt. In humans, it takes between two or three weeks to adapt to this form of diet. But with some mild supplementation, we know that when you adapt or you know, adopt and adapt to this diet, you will lose excess fluid that you've been retaining perhaps for decades because of high insulin. Uh, one of the ramifications being uh, fluid retention and uh, sodium retention, and so when your insulin goes down, you'll lose that fluid, and with fluid loss, you lose potassium, and many people then who adopt this diet and who do not supplement with potassium, just like you would do if you, I mean, if you had a diuretic, doctor would make sure you had enough potassium, you have to do the same thing here. If you do that, the adaptation really is much less. Uh, most of the adverse side effects one gets when they adopt this sort of diet is that they don't take certain supplements that uh, really should be taken to ease that transition. Um, but they don't really notice great improvement for several weeks as your body starts learning how to burn fat. It's been basically the, the mechanisms to burn fat have been hibernating for so long that it takes a while to wake up uh, that genetic machinery to manufacture the enzymes and uh, other chemicals necessary to process 
uh, fat as fuel. And, uh, but the adaptation is so much less uh, and the benefits are so great as opposed to the side effects and lack of benefit one gets when they take some of the standard treatment for MS or cancer or any of the things that basically uh, are, are really treated inadequately at best. Well, because I, you know, medicine is, is pretty much held on a pedestal. You have all these fancy machinery and you walk around in white coats and uh, you get something that's ten to $20,000 a month therapy. It's got to be doing something. They can't believe that it really does nothing and actually is, is more harmful than not. And I think people uh, want some sort of hope. They want to do something. And when you uh, have supposed experts telling you to do something, that this will be good for you, you listen to them because you figure you're not an expert and they're more of an expert and they know what they're doing and, and uh, they might have very nice personalities and maybe, maybe they're even great people and maybe they really want to help and maybe they even believe that they're helping. But the, the cold, hard scientific facts are that they're not and that they're in the vast majority of chronic diseases. That includes heart disease and including, you know, the, the control of cholesterol and, and cancer therapies and, and the treatment for diabetes, all of these things really are, are, are causing much more harm, not just a little bit more harm, but much more harm than if they did nothing. That, and, and I'm not even saying do nothing. I'm saying just change your diet. Diet is really, really powerful. And I know that everybody says, yeah, okay, we know that eating, eating well is, is helpful. If you eat just right, if you eat just right, if you eat to control really powerful hormones, such as leptin and insulin, you can make huge changes in your health. And you can not just help prevent disease. We're not talking about preventive medicine here. We're talking about therapeutic medicine. We're talking about treating cancer. We're talking about treating autoimmune diseases. We're talking about reversing heart disease and high blood pressure and diabetes and obesity. And we're doing that by really getting much further to the root of those diseases because what we're doing is delving into the actual aging process and therefore the symptoms of aging. Because we know that these hormones are, are not just involved, but probably control the rate of aging. And that that's been shown now in, in many species of laboratory animals, uh, that there is, there's a genetic, genetic mechanism that actually regulates the rate of aging, which has to do with uh, nature's desire to have animals live long enough to reproduce. So there's a, a strong uh, synergy between diet, reproduction, and rate of aging. And all animals that around Earth today evolved uh, with, with that synergy in mind. And so diet, what a person eats, controls uh, and, and uh, expresses, changes genetic expression of very powerful genes that then essentially affect every process in the body. And it basically boils down to one thing. And you, know, you just have to summarize all of the stuff we've been saying. You can make huge changes in your health if you switch from burning sugar to burning fat. That's it. The body functions really, really differently. And you will be much healthier. You will improve your immune system function, not just in fighting infections and fighting cancer, but also preventing it from uh, overfighting which would manifest as autoimmune diseases by burning fat. It's a, it's, a, uh, it's a totally different type of fuel, and the body functions extremely differently when you burn fat as when you have to burn sugar. We were never designed to burn sugar extensively, and that's the major problem with the diseases of civilization is that the whole world is now primarily burning sugar as its primary fuel, and that has to do with what people are being fed and what the medical profession has told people to eat. The medical profession told people, don't eat fat, eat carbohydrates, eat a high carbohydrate, low fat diet. That's been their mantra for over half a century. And that has just been, uh, that's been a killer. 
there has never been in the history of mankind worse advice than that, and it was actually based on nothing. It's based on you don't get any nutritional training in medical school. So why they why they said that in the first place is really beyond me. But it was really what I would call kind of kindergarten medicine. So they noticed fatty plaques in arteries. So they said, "Well, if you eat fat, it's going to stick to your arteries and kill you," and that's and that's literally what caused fat to be blamed for heart disease. No scientific merit, no studies, nothing really of substance to to implicate that. But that the body doesn't work that way. The body is far more complex than that, and the body is is regulated by instructions and by signals. And if, if you have signals to build up plaque in your arteries, you'll do it. And if you have signals to burn fat or signals to burn sugar, you'll do that. And your cells are living that line your arteries, and they can burn fat or sugar too. And if they're burning fat, they're going to keep themselves clean, essentially. And whether you burn fat or sugar is regulated by the same powerful hormones that regulate aging. And that's leptin and insulin. And it, it regulates uh, all of the, since it affects and even controls to a great extent the rate of aging, it will affect those processes that also affect the rate of aging, such as immunity, autoimmunity, cancer, diabetes, overabundance or not of fat. Um, everything that we notice detrimental that happens when we age is going to be controlled by those hormones that are controlled by what we eat. Well, thank you, and good luck to your friend. Good luck, to, good luck. Sometimes I think the hardest thing is to watch someone that you care about where you hope that they could get better and they don't want to do it your way. Yeah, it's rather frustrating. Uh, I mean, there's, there's a lot of money in advertising, lots of marketing, in other words, that goes behind the, the standard of medical care. And uh, it's... It's, it's very hard to fight, but we have to.